I was so offended. Like, <laughs> who is he talking to? Like, Welcome to Surviving Society. With Chantel Lewis and Tiso Regis. Executively produced by Georgia Fori Addo. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please support us via Patreon. If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating and reviewing. This is a trigger warning. This episode, at times, contains conversations and sensitive material that people may find difficult to listen to. Welcome to another episode of Surviving Society's Alternative to Woman's Hour. Today, I'm really excited to be in conversation with Vivian Isabor, who is the co-founder of ADHD Babes. She is a MA graduate in cultural perspectives in mental health care and is currently clinical associate in psychology trainee at UCL. And she is a singer-songwriter. Vivian, thank you so much for coming on the Alternative to Women's Hour. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Before we introduce yourself in more detail, Vivian, and also ADHD Babes, the important work of ADHD Babes, I just want to sort of recap a bit to some of our listeners and some of our new listeners. So I have multiple neurodiverse traits. I am ADHD, so I have attention deficit hyperactive disorder. I have dyslexia and I have dyspraxia. I got my quote-unquote diagnosis. I don't know the word diagnosis. We're going to talk about that a bit later. Three years ago now. So I'm 29 this year. Yeah, coming up two years ago now. But crucially, my diagnosis stemmed from my PhD supervisor, the legendary Emma Jackson, who I'm incredibly indebted to, picking up on parts of my writing style that she didn't recognize and how I was formulating sentences and encouraged me to go to disability services and get tested went to disability services had the initial test they were like okay we need to refer you it seems there are multiple things happening here so because I'm a student at Goldsmiths I'm a PhD student I managed to get a discount on my appointment with educational specialist but he was a psychologist as well someone that's educational psychologist then educational psychologist so I did a session with him following the other couple of hours that I'd done at the university for about two and a half hours and he was absolutely astounded Mm. that I had got to the age of 25 and no one had picked up on this he was like you are a high functioning ADHD person and you also have pretty severe dyslexia and dyspraxia but that is to give you um an introduction to my neurodiverse Mm. traits and I have began to talk about it a little bit on the podcast over the past few years I have tried to talk a bit about my neurodiversity on the podcast but not in as much detail as I think we're going to talk about on this episode because Mm. I myself have been coming to terms with what it means to me to be a neurodiverse high-functioning person, um, what it means to myself as in looking back on my education career so far. Vivian, let's talk about you. I mean, I just can't believe we have the same profile. Like, (laughs) (laughs) gosh, my neurodiverse twin. um, I had really similar experiences where um, I actually got diagnosed with dyslexia and dyspraxia first um, at uni and it was somebody at work. I managed to be like an hour late is when I was like a support worker with the National Autistic Society. I was an hour late, just a mess. I forgot the time, got on the wrong train, went the wrong direction. Just one thing after the other. And I got there, I was like, I'm so sorry. I didn't, I got on the wrong train. And she's like, oh, you, you sound a bit like me and I've got dyspraxia. Maybe you should go and get tested for that. So I was like, okay, do you know what? If, if I'm going to get extra time at uni, I'd, I'd love that. I'd love a bit of 25% extra. Did the test. And in the end, they was like, yeah, you've got severe dyslexia and you've got mild dyspraxia. And that was kind of the first, into knowing that there was even a thing like I'd never really understood what that was and it was only after I actually graduated from uni you know went traveling tried to live my best life I was like there's something something's not quite right here like something's not adding up and originally it was actually an Asperger's test or assessment that I took with um with like a specialist clinic and I scored low for that but then they did a screening test and found that I scored really high for ADHD and OCD 
they then referred me on to that clinic um and then finally yeah ended up getting that diagnosis so it was very yeah it wasn't it wasn't even picked up on purpose it was very much kind of just looking for one thing and then finding another people would mention it in jest where it's like oh you act like someone with ADHD but because I didn't understand what that was and in my head that was you know when I think of ADHD I think of a young white boy in class who can't sit still like I, I couldn't imagine what that looked like for me so I very much just didn't even process that here we are <laughs> three diagnoses later <laughs> here we are and I yeah. guess Vivian it would be really good to tell our listeners a little bit about ADHD babes and the work you've been doing so with ADHD babes um originally it started off as a Facebook group um the person I was with when I got diagnosed um was like super pro trying to get like understanding trying to find support groups obviously for them it was like a revelation because they're like this is why your temper is so bad this is why you always lose things like really making sense of stuff so they were very pro like let's understand and resolve this um but all the support groups that we found in London were not diverse um people were a lot older yeah I couldn't yeah there was not many people my age or like from similar backgrounds so it was literally going on Facebook going into all these groups that had black women in them hi does anyone have ADHD hi would anybody be interested in joining this group and I think by the first few months we had like yeah maybe six to seven people and then after that it started to grow quite organically within a year me and two other girls from the group moved on to a whatsapp group that originally was just going to be for accountability but then we started adding more and more people um and then again it just started to grow naturally like people know other people with neurodiversity so everybody was kind of added in then last year during the lockdown one of the girls was um suggested that we start like a zoom kind of session where every week people can check in see how people are feeling um just to kind of reduce isolation and that got really popular like i would share it on twitter and people will share and then there'll be like two or three people like, oh, I've got ADHD. I just found out. Can I join? Or people who don't have the diagnosis, but just want to kind of speak to other people who might have it. Um, so, yeah, it kept growing organically. And by the time I finished my master's in September, I kind of decided that actually this could really be like an official thing. Like we can register it. We can apply for funding. So I kind of called like two of the girls that like we first moved onto WhatsApp group and we had a meeting discussed it and decided that yeah we're going to make it an official thing like and go public because at the moment everything was kind of just internal um and we already had a name like people in the group came up with a name naturally kind of went from there and it really boomed like from the first session that we published like every event bright has sold out and the wait list has literally like doubled from when we first started the support and the interest and people just like showing appreciation as well has yeah it's been amazing it's only, and it's only been six months since we've gone public mm. so it feels quite mm. unreal actually honestly Vivian like it's so inspiring talking to you and hearing you speak and I'm just so grateful for you guys for setting up this organization because I completely understand firsthand how important these groups are and yeah it's just it's an absolute honor that you've for you to be on this show talking about the work you're doing I guess before we talk a little bit about some of the themes that have come up in the ADHD babe session I realized we hadn't really started the podcast really explaining what neurodiversity is who neurotypicals are I mean you can look up definitions of ADHD dyspraxia dyslexia but sometimes I feel like they don't really for some people particularly people like us don't necessarily show us exactly what that means for our lived experiences of the world Mm -hmm. and I think what's really important about what you're doing at ADHD babe in democratizing information of what that is for black women is you're really targeting the the how intersectionally we need to think about race Mm -hmm. disability and gender well I can begin by telling the listeners how do my each neurodiverse traits affect me on a sort of superficial day-to-day level my ADHD means I have got a lot of energy a lot of the time and how I use that energy is is through starting tasks Mm -hmm. multiple tasks and actually sometimes more the more tasks I have going on at once the more productive I can be which is actually the opposite for people with neurotypical brains Mm -hmm. that's my perspective so often throughout my life people have said to me you need to do less in order to do more but actually when it comes to my day-to-day 
doing more actually helps me do more mm-hmm. of course there's a balance here there's always a balance and you can definitely go over well I'm talking about me personally I can definitely go overboard as someone with um high functioning ADHD but I cannot underestimate enough how multiple task um starting we'll talk about completing helps me um, (laughs) to be a productive person Mm -hmm. so that's my ADHD the other thing about my ADHD is there are certain points in the day that I can work so for me the morning is my ideal time can't really do much in the evening the other thing that's really important about my ADHD how I used to medicate myself was through intense exercise Mm. so I have always done intense exercise from a very young age um, whether that's running gym spin class whatever Mm -hmm. I've always needed high intensity exercise to sort of get me functioning as a normal person Mm -hmm. so that's my ADHD my dyspraxia is for me in my everyday life an example of how dyspraxia has affected me is I can only drive automatic cars. I can't mm-hmm. drive a manual car. I've got really, really bad coordination. So I don't know my left and right. I like, I have to do the mm-hmm. L test of my hands. Every time someone's asking me about left and right, I get lost a lot. Places that I've been to hundreds of times, I'll get lost trying to get there. I just have bad coordination in general. And then the dyslexia, which definitely shocked me when I got that diagnosis because I didn't I again I kind of associated this stuff with the sort of white boys in the school in the class the dyslexia affects how I write and how I'm able to produce work so these combined traits which are apparently quite common for people that have got ADHD is that they have often will have dyspraxia and dyslexia with them combined it's meant that my journey through education as well as experiencing um racism Mm. has been very much pervaded by a lack of care and acknowledgement of how these traits affect my capacity to Mm. succeed in mainstream education I feel like they'll come up anecdotally as we go through this episode but I think it is really important to specify to people that don't have neurodiversity how these things actually manifest within our day-to-day lives Mm -hmm. I'm really glad you mentioned it the other more uncomfortable thing about having neurodiversity in particularly having ADHD is how it affects your emotions Hmm. your capacity to not get overly frustrated to not get angry and I think for a long time when I didn't know what was wrong with me quote-unquote wrong with me I use things like exercise sometimes self-medicating like drinking excessively to kind of alleviate how these traits would manifest within my social life mm-hmm. that was deep yeah I think because I think even though this podcast is aimed at people interested in politics people interested mm-hmm. in sociology we were talking in our pre-chat about there is an elitism that is. is that surrounds talking about neurodiversity mm-hmm. but also around education in general and that we all come to it starting from the same point like we mm-hmm. can talk about how meritocracy doesn't exist for days within sociology mm-hmm. but like I need you to think about how even if we dispel the myth of meritocracy you I'm not my brain isn't the same as yours so I'm not coming exactly. to your different ways of learning with the same ways of doing it no it's so interesting to hear like your experiences with it because it, now it's even making me think back and I'm like oh my god that thing about excessive exercise I've always done multiple exercises so now I'm even thinking back to secondary school I did netball basketball football athletics rugby how could I have been on every team but now I'm like maybe that's what was actually keeping me on some kind of baseline level that managed to get me through the education system and the same with college like I was on the basketball team and then by the time I got to uni, I started doing like really intense mixed martial arts or and then still running on the weekends, doing hot yoga, doing all these things. And I'm like, rah, like that, that's before I had the diagnosis. So now I'm like, that really must have been such a grounding thing mm-hmm. for me to this day. Like exercise is such an important part of my like self-care routine, because I know if I don't exercise, my like restlessness um, will be visible. Like my leg will be shaking. I will find it hard to sit still for a long period of time yeah it was really interesting hearing that I guess yeah so mine is also similar with that like the intense exercise and what you mentioned about self-medicating as well literally because alcohol is a depressant 
like it would help me feel calmer so especially in uni when I was struggling with like going to lectures and even remembering when deadlines was because my thoughts were all over the place like that really helped in terms of dampening things and then I guess with yeah I think one of my main things with my ADHD is the the kind of emotional regulation and there's also like an association with rejection sensitivity dysphoria the experience of criticism or negative feedback is a lot more intense. You, you feel it. <laughs> in my chest. That hit hard then. And why am I in industry of academia where right? criticism where criticism is like the forefront of everything, everything we do? And I feel it. Oh, oh rejection sensitivity dysphoria. Honestly. It's harsh. And it's hard to explain to people because for the long t- for the longest, it's just like within my friendship group and within people I dated, it's just like, oh, she's sensitive. Even she over-exaggerates. And I'm not over-exaggerating. This is exactly how I feel. And most times I'm actually trying to cap it because I feel like people are going to take it as too much. But it's, yeah, the, even if it's perceived rejection or perceived criticism, like, and a lot of people feel it physically as well. Like it's not even just an emotional thing. So I think that for me has been like a long standing difficulty, especially within intimate relationships, like really struggling to hear feedback and then ha- that having like an internal effect on self-esteem. In general, with ADHD, there's a stat that shows that um, people with ADHD receive 50% more negative feedback than like a neurotypical person, which makes sense because if we're losing things, if we're forgetting things, people are going to be reinforcing this negative idea that, you know, you're not good enough, you're not trying hard enough. Uh, you're lazy like that lazy word is really thrown around anyhow that the emotional regulation for me like I had a really bad temple I still have it but I'm working on it my temple was really bad that's the only thing that got picked up in school she's got a bad temper give her a counsellor and getting excluded for getting into fights and whatever <laughs> I don't really talk about my childhood <laughs> misbehaviors um so yeah I think the emotional part for me is really difficult um and even that thing of starting tasks like I constantly feel like I'm on the go and that's been I, like, I didn't know not everybody was like that, where it's like, I could, I'll be doing multiple things. And people are like, I think you need to concentrate on one thing or you're not going to do it as well. And I'm like, but I can't. Like, if I do one thing, I'm not going to be able to do the other thing because they complement one another. Um, and like you said, there's a balance. Like sometimes I take on too much and then I have a meltdown and I freeze and I don't do anything. But in an ideal situation, I can have like three things on the go or like I'll have a list of stuff and start one, start number three and rotate. Because I think, and I think it's linked into that dopamine thing of we need the hit. And I guess when you start a new task, there's a hit, there's an, an excitement there. Or if you achieve like a third of it, that okay, I've got a third of the way through. And having the motivation to push through the whole thing without having breaks isn't, it's not as easy for like, as it is for neurotypical people. That's such a good point, Vivian. And it reminds me of in the first year of when I started my PhD, I was so excited because Mm -hmm. I'd spent, because of the combination of race and class manifesting Mm -hmm. in my life, I'd spent so much time working and studying at the same time, but work being a means to basic to, to, yeah. to survive as what, what it is for most people particularly while studying like I had to do both of those things intensely together in order to stay in the academy mm. but for the first time ever when I started my PhD I was secure enough in my economic position to just focus on the PhD mm. and I was like oh my god this is so exciting but when I tell you Vivian that was one of the worst mm. years of my life in education because I tried to be neurotypical and I'm not neurotypical so I didn't get anything done Mm -hmm. and I thought I can't do this even my supervisors were like like well they didn't necessarily this isn't how it's going how I thought it would they were always very very supportive of me but like it was so the lack of progress I was making Mm was mad like it was so bad Mm. now I know it was only in my second year of my thesis that I got the diagnosis and I've just become very much at peace with the fact that Mm. I don't work in the same way as neurotypicals and that means and that is okay but unfortunately within I mean within both academia within education settings within loads of professional settings Mm -hmm. there is being neurotypical is normative like that Mm. is how everyone is and works quote unquote but it isn't there are so many like 
yourself and I who work and produce in very different ways and we have to find ways of adapting to how normative work and studying is presented and that pushback against our way of doing things Mm. I feel like is daily Mm. you're daily daily I I do think the lockdown has definitely opened up a conversation about questions around accessibility remote Mm. learning neurodiversity in general and Mm. disabilities of course which I think is really positive there's so much work out there in scholarship that has been produced Mm. about how neurodiversity affects students how Mm. it affects people in general but if we really try to incorporate that within how we assess and or look at students I think would be so brilliant but I just think we're a long way off it yeah I think there's a it's interesting because ADHD has been researched a lot but when I look at like practical things I still feel like there's such a gap because um a lot of the people who are in the group are studying what like we had like a student support type session um a couple weeks ago and people had such similar stories of like struggling through academia having to repeat being missed especially as like you know a woman or a non-binary person they found that people um, who are women the symptoms are seen as kind of more internal where they're seen as daydreamers or you know they're lacking concentration but it's not external so they're just seen as someone that doesn't necessarily pay attention so they're missed and then add race on top of that you know how considered are we really or if we're saying that we're struggling or we report that we're struggling are we believed statistically so you add that element and then do we even feel like we can ask for help are we kind of taught to internalize struggle blame ourselves and then try and struggle through so a lot of students are struggling and when they've like we've encouraged a lot of people to go and get the diagnosis within their education system because schools colleges and universities have a fund to assess students so we've been encouraging people to do that and like you said there's been a pushback because people are kind of just like you just need to try harder you just need to concentrate uh you know have you tried meditation very kind of black and white approaches and trying and not seeing the wider picture um and in my head I feel like there's a normalization of struggle for black people where it's like yeah you're struggling but you'll be fine and people don't see the vulnerability and the need for support when we're asking for it but even when they have got that support it's been really limited like the stuff that's available to support people with ADHD uh, within academia is not extensive like they've done really well I think personally with dyslexia and dyspraxia like I had so much support for that but for the ADHD like they don't even have ADHD coaches available within DSA it does feel quite limited I feel like the the research moving forward in terms of helping people manage um understand and like improve their quality of life I feel like there's been a bit of a gap there and then especially when you look at cultural differences as well one of the things that we were like quite adamant about when starting is that we don't want to be just in like another ADHD service that's very bland very kind of you know very rooted in just black and white thinking because when we look at other organizations that are like more long-standing and they've got like really huge followers when we look at what they produce it doesn't feel very people-led it feels very like you know we're up here reading and understanding what this diagnosis is and we're like filtering out the information it doesn't feel like it really engages with like the real people that are living their lives yeah so I feel like there's a gap that's really interesting Vivian and it's reminding me because obviously we're seeing a lot more information sharing about ADHD Mm. and in particular I think we're seeing a lot more black women getting their diagnosis and obviously me and you are a case point examples of people getting diagnosed black women getting diagnosed in their adult life one of the pushbacks which has been really disappointing for me is hearing people say well it's on trend to say you're neurodiverse now like everyone's getting this now like Mm. everyone says everyone says they've got ADHD blah 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 and it's like hang on a minute like these are in the case of black women non-binary people these are people that have spent a lot of time being pushed aside within their education journey Mm. in general whether that's at school or at university and now they're finding out that as well as race impacting how they are treated and are received and navigate education there has been this other element that hadn't been picked up that had been possibly ignored by some people Mm. and people are working out some really big existential things about themselves like Mm -hmm. who are you to say that this is about a trend Mm -hmm. like yeah of course there's going to be more people that have been marginalized that are finding out about neurodiversity because 
we have been marginalized within exactly. our education trajectory of course that's going to happen information is being democratized about this stuff then you're going to get more people that are mm-hmm. going to be coming forward being like hang on a minute this is my experience as well mm-hmm. let me get diagnosed oh i've got adhd mm-hmm. and i know of some people who have suspected they have ADHD and that have decided not to get diagnosed because they don't Mm -hmm. want it to affect how they see themselves or how they are viewed in society. When I got my diagnosis, it was a combination of relief, happiness, but also sadness. Mm -hmm. So the relief, I contextualized the relief as I thought that there was something wrong with me for most Mm. of my life. I really thought there was something internally wrong with me. Mm. I also thought I was stupid. I thought I wasn't intelligent at all. I didn't think I had the capacity to like succeed in anything really. But I found out that there were these neurodiverse traits and that there was something called being neurotypical, which dispels all of those myths I had about myself for Mm -hmm. as long as I can remember for my whole life thought Mm -hmm. that number two the happiness I found out that I have something that I can find ways to both control Mm -hmm. use to my advantage and it's a big part of me like Mm -hmm. it's a big part of who I am and where I'm positioned in society where I position myself in society how I'm received Mm -hmm. so that was a kind of happiness the sadness was that it took me back to my school years when I spent the majority of school in bottom sets. Mm. I was basically taught, like I had a very similar experience to lots of black kids who grow up in mainly white schools. I was put in English as a foreign language classes from reception, basically told there was something internally wrong with me as to why I wasn't succeeding um and I watched so many white boys growing up get this basically care around Mm. their um ADHD in particular Mm -hmm. and just looking back on that time and realizing that it wasn't about me Mm -hmm. and that I had neurodiversity I had ADHD it wasn't picked up by those that were supposed to be looking after me I was being measured or I've always been measured in accordance with some universalized idea of meritocracy and education, which is for people with a distinctively different brain to my own. (laughs) So those three like Mm. things about getting first get my diagnosis were really, have been really important for how I've been thinking about um, my life as someone with ADHD what have you seen for yourself but also amongst the people that have engaged Mm -hmm. with ADHD babes about getting diagnosed Mm -hmm. as adults honestly it's so similar if not like exactly that and a lot of the conversations we've had during the support groups have been around this idea that actually when you got the diagnosis you go through a grieving period because it's literally like you have to accept it. So for me, my initial stage was denial. I literally didn't even read that report for a solid couple of months. That report. So <laughs> just to give the listeners context, when you get your diagnosis, you get like a big report that's extremely <laughs> personal to you. Very detailed. Basically details exactly how your brain works. Mm-hmm. I was so offended. Like, <laughs> who is he talking to? Like, I did not want to read that report like bless the person I was with at the time that was so supportive and like supported me to accept and embrace that this is this is real and that's okay so yeah denial is definitely in there and there's the process of acceptance like okay this is a thing and I feel like one of the most difficult parts of the grieving process is like you were saying acknowledging and moving to accept that we we weren't supported the way we deserved to be supported um we deserved for people to notice it was their job to notice um you know we were children children require like personalized support to 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 hit their potential um and to grow in a way where they you know they grow with a sense of like self-efficacy um and good self-esteem and one of the things that like I did a survey with uh, members asking like what kind of groups you want to have in the new year like what topics self-esteem was the highest one and when I think about it like when we're talking it's like the undercurrent thread because you go through education or even just in terms of socializing because ADHD also affects like your social relationships as well and you are constantly internalizing things that don't work so okay I've missed my deadline that's my fault you know I've I keep interrupting people in conversation that's my fault 
I lose everything. That's my, like everything is internalized because there isn't an explanation. The fact that we are missed is very much because of gender, is very much because of race. Um, and then you add on the whole difficulty of, uh, you know, a lack of access um, for people who are neurodiverse in the first place. Like the social disability model for me makes so much sense. Or it's, it's not that people are disabled per se, it's that society hasn't provided you know, access in a way where everybody can be equal and everybody has the same opportunities. And it's the same with ADHD, where it's like the education system is obviously pertain, like, pertains to neurotypical people because they're the majority, but they can do things in between to allow people like us to thrive. But it's just, it hasn't hit that yet. And the people that are missed are literally, yeah, they have to troll through life, you know, literally struggling. And for me and my personal experience, like we didn't have the space to say, look, I'm struggling can I get help? It was like, if you struggle, that's on you to to do better and to try harder. So yeah, when I like flopped my first year of college, I didn't even tell anyone at home. I literally, I don't even know how I managed to, to like bring that up. I think I had to take up, I had to pick up an extra AS for the next year. And the same thing with uni, like there's some modules that are just a blank on my transcript because I just didn't, I just didn't show up. So I feel like, yeah, we are definitely constantly missed. Um, and the process of accepting that people failed us like society failed us um and now we're stuck here with all these memories and these negative self-beliefs um and now doing the work to unpack all of that but that wasn't mine like that was not mine to hold that was society failing me I'm not the failure I'm not the wrong one I'm not bad I'm not stupid I'm not lazy I have ADHD and I wasn't supported to fulfill my potential not that I didn't fulfill my potential you wasn't supported to do that so I think that that process we have it a lot in the group like we've had people cry at the end of sessions because people have been telling their stories and they're like you are me like you're literally me like I I too flocked my year of uni or I had to drop out and I just had to go straight into working because and that's a sad thing as well like I feel really really privileged that I managed to make it through uni okay and I feel like I, yeah I was just lucky like I they, they picked up the dyslexia and dyspraxia so I got support my friends are really supportive like there were times where they would literally give me their work because I just couldn't do it and I could use theirs like but some not everybody gets that same kind of lucky stroke. And that, that's what really hurts me as well. Like the system has really failed people to really difficult extents. I think you're totally right. And it's reminding me to sort of incorporate class on all of this, yeah. because one of the things that I'm, I try to be as clear as possible about on this podcast is there is absolutely no way that I would be at this point now about to finish my PhD with multiple neurodiverse traits mm. as a black woman, black mixed race woman, if I hadn't had economic support when I got it. Mm. So becoming economically secure when I had it by, yeah, meeting my partner, my partner supporting me whilst I completed postgraduate research. Mm. There is absolutely no way that I would be able to be sat here now talking with you mm -hmm. if I hadn't had that security. So that's another really important point to think about. We've got race, disability, mm -hmm. um, obviously ADHD, education, mm -hmm. gender, but also class. Yep. And like you say, like this has been luck. Like mm -hmm. it's, it's luck yep. that I am literally sat here now. And what I'm so so inspired by of what you're doing at ADHD babes is there is potent there's going to be potential people's lives that you're saving mm -hmm. lived experiences that you're saving just by democratizing information mm -hmm. by sharing stories because it was you just didn't get that you just you didn't, didn't get that you just struggled through obviously just, there's been yeah. people that have been doing work over the years on dismantling this idea of um, black people being um, inferior that's obviously happened for decades and decades within this country um like saturday schools all that yeah. stuff but there is a very particular experience that we're talking about here mm -hmm. that has to be picked up and when you bring in class to it as well mm -hmm. like having security to both navigate and understand and work towards having a peaceful existence mm. is so important to consider because the thing is as well that's why with the groups and stuff because I've tried to roll out a lot more groups that have been about like the healing process. So what I've done, trying to make the resources for healing accessible, because like you said, with class, therapists are like £60 an hour. Like if you are, you know, on a limited income and you've got responsibilities to now invest in £60 a week for your recovery might not be financially possible. Um, 
or even just like having access to resources um so that you can like engage in things that interest you so you don't feel like you're constantly working or you're constantly stressed all these things are not necessarily accessible depending on your income so one of the things that's been super important for me is making sure the events are scaled and tickets are on a sliding scale where some tickets are free uh, some are reduced and then there's like just normal price tickets uh, so people who are financially stable you know they can buy the fuller ticket and then that's going to fund the kind of concession tickets and obviously when we get funding it will be so much easier but at the moment that's worked and then we've had some amazing people like Tanya Compass has offered to like fund a certain amount of tickets for uh, members from the LGBTQ plus community which is amazing um, and we've also like started forming partnerships with apps that are, like work with neurodiverse people and they're going to fund certain things so yeah I think having it accessible and the same with the diagnosis itself like I reached out to quite a few organizations that do assessments and they scale for like the cheapest we found was 350 the most expensive was a thousand and if you do the thousand one within a week you've got your diagnosis like you literally book it that day and by next week you'll have it whereas the 350 one you might have to wait wait a couple of weeks um, and that's why we've really been promoting the Psychiatry UK route um, and we've had people just like DM on Twitter and I'd like talk them through it. I'd even like send them breakdowns of like the different kind of questions that people might ask just to like get people prepared and thinking because that at least that route takes away the financial pressure. Because if you do go private, you pay for the diagnosis and then you have to pay for your medication and then pay for your checkups. And these things are like £300 a piece. Like it's not affordable. But then the wait list for the NHS, you know, the longest is up to like two years. And I think the shortest is about a year. So that's the year of just struggling through and waiting for support. So, yeah, I feel like if if I was middle class and I was saying I'm struggling, they could have afforded to just get me that test, even if the school, you know, was taking too long and couldn't afford it. So that plays such a huge part. And like when I meet adults that got diagnosed as children, some of their symptoms don't even show anymore because they've built a life around themselves that, you know, alleviates those symptoms um, and they they can use the strengths of it. To, to the best of their advantage. I think it's, yeah, class and income is a huge, huge part of it. Um, Definitely. Yeah. I wanted to have a conversation with you about medication. Mm. So for me personally, I don't take medication. I think part of that is because my transition to being um, middle class has alleviated the need for me to have medication. However, I think I definitely medicate through exercise mm. and diet. So like I, I definitely am susceptible to binge eating, which is a um, trait of neuro of ADHD, but I have to be very, very careful. I try to be on a day to day basis, careful about the times in which I eat. So usually I fast in the mornings and I eat between um, one o'clock and eight o'clock in the day um two meals usually but that is to do with alleviating the ADHD or like trying to make me more functionable because as well the other thing we haven't spoken about is sort of the drop in moods um which is Mm. a massive massive part of having ADHD but yeah so medication so I don't have medication that's a choice that I've made personally but I know lots of other people do decide to take medication just to be clear so I medicate through exercise um controlling my diet and when I eat and also weekly therapy with a black Mm -hmm. woman therapist so I have three things that I do but I don't take medication however I, I know quite a lot of people do and it's important that some people do as well could you talk a little bit about that Vivian yeah, definitely. I guess, yeah, for me personally, I don't take medication at the moment. I was actually discharged from my ADHD clinic for missing too many appointments. Hilarious. Um, so I'm back on the waiting list to kind of get back in. Originally, when I when I was in the clinic, I was requesting for CBT for ADHD. Uh, but the psychiatrist was adamant that, you know, you need to try your medication first. And if that doesn't work, then you can do the CBT. So I tried different medications and they didn't really work for me. Um, also I didn't give it a chance because I wasn't you know I was very adamant that I want to try talking therapy first so yeah I wasn't taking it regularly um it got to a point where I just yeah I couldn't be bothered with it all and some of the side effects I was getting like I did it did help in terms of like the impulsivity and you know I wouldn't say I could concentrate more but my thoughts are generally quite racy like I have racing thoughts throughout the day and it, it wasn't like that it did kind of feel like I just had like a line, like I was just on one road um, of thoughts. But then that actually felt quite dampening where I felt like I wasn't necessarily there. If I had continued like in the clinic, I'm sure they would have like titrated it downwards, gave me like a lower dosage. 
but yeah again like I missed too many appointments I was late they discharged me I know a lot of people in the group do take meds um and they find it really helpful and what the general consensus that seems to come up is meds like meds will work for the person like the meds that work for you are not going to be the meds that work for somebody else um and for some people they just don't need meds like everybody's ADHD is different uh while we all have similarities in terms of management some people can manage without meds and, and some people do need it or they, they feel they function a lot better with it. The two main types, there's like the kind of um, short burst and there's a long-term burst where you'll take one and that will last you for the day. And then there's another one that you kind of, if you're about to, you know, sit down by a laptop and bang something out, you'll take that and it will be like a short release burst. So yeah, again, depending on your lifestyle, like one of um, one of our co-founders said that when they were working on nine to five, they would kind of take the long release one and that would work for the day. Um, whereas now that they're freelancing you know having the short burst is a lot easier because it's like okay now I want to concentrate now and I need to show I don't necessarily necessarily need it so yeah I would say in terms of medication ultimately ADHD like can be managed and it's just figuring out what works for you some people are anti-meds in general so you don't have to take meds exercise is actually recommended by consultant psychiatrists meditation and mindfulness is um, constantly um, suggested as well Um, spending time in nature having clear routines um, and getting into like a cycle. Yeah, diet definitely as well. Like we're really susceptible to if we eat certain things, it, it makes it makes it more difficult to concentrate or difficult to kind of manage what's going on internally. So yeah, I think it just depends on the person. There's no wrong, wrong or right. I originally went back on the waiting list because I was struggling finishing my dissertation. But in general, I kind of manage by doing similar things to you. Like I make sure I exercise a minimum amount in a week I make sure I go to nature at least once a week like leave my phone and just spend some time in nature and that really helps I meditate daily uh, I do Reiki um, I also see a black woman who's a therapist every week yeah and I have a really 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 strict routine but it's, it's ironic because it's like it's strict to the extent where it's like I know this is what I need to do today um, and I have a time block where it's like this is the time block that you need to do this so I don't have to start on the dot but I know I need to start within that time period yeah that helps me keep things in order so I don't feel like I'm literally just floating around so I think it just depends on the person it's figure it's, it's, it's trial and error a lot of the time but every I think every everything can be managed that's that's so good and that's a really thoughtful and considered I think introduction to medication mm-hmm. and Vivian thank you so much for that the final thing I wanted to talk about on this episode was some of the more darker sides of ADHD um sort of talking to you like it feels like we have together created and what you do at um ADHD babes as well a sort of safe space to talk about how ADHD affects our lives and manifests and has manifested sometimes without us even knowing and I mean I try and position uh, my ADHD for myself as almost like my superpower mm. like it's something which I am almost proud to have it's something that makes me special it's something that I use to do things that I think neurotypicals can't do like I try and situate it within myself and how I understand myself as something positive mm-hmm. however there are things about ADHD particularly when you look back at your own childhood and even things that have happened in your adult life and you realize oh okay that was happening because of that so for me another significant part of my ADHD is struggling with mental health so Mm -hmm. struggling with depression struggling with getting very down like Mm -hmm. when I was a teenager um, I was effectively sectioned and spent a lot of time in a very dark place and spent also spent a lot of time um, on antidepressants Mm -hmm. It's similar to what you were talking about when you're talking about ADHD meds. Antidepressants definitely leveled me out, mm-hmm. but I think it definitely flattened out the things about my ADHD which made me Chantel, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. So once I was better in myself and didn't need professional help with regards to how my mental health, I decided that I wanted to find ways that weren't medication to help myself live to the fullest that I can. And then obviously after I came off my medication, when I was about 21, five years later, I got my diagnosis. Mm. So, or four years later, sorry. So it's one of the things that I think is so powerful about what you're doing, Vivian. 
and what you're doing at ADHD Bays is we can talk about the different ways in which ADHD manifests, but we also have a safe space to have a culturally competent conversation about Mm -hmm. the dark sides of it, which for me have concerned, yeah, depression basically. Mm -hmm. Yeah, do you know what? It's like in terms of percentages, there's a, I can't remember the exact number, but there is like a really big comorbidity with um, anxiety and depression um, for people with ADHD. And I think a lot of it is about like how we're socialized. It's about like the circumstances that we find ourselves in because we're undiagnosed and because people don't understand our differences. So yeah, I had like really similar experiences where um, in university, uh, I had to like retake the year because my mental health was just terrible. Like um, I was diagnosed with depression and PTSD now when I look back I'm like in terms of like the emotional regulation and how things feel how I felt about myself how people around me saw me all these things kind of contribute to like how how we manage our mental health it's really interesting because as children we kind of learn how to navigate through the world so if as you're navigating you're being constantly told that you're doing something wrong you're not good enough you're lazy or this or that that is the kind of lens that you're seeing the world so I am imagining myself growing up wearing those lenses and having kind of like constant knockbacks and how they talk about in psychology as like the stress vulnerability bucket, how that's going to interfere with how much my bucket can hold in terms of difficulties and stress. Um, And the fact that we are undiagnosed means that more stress is going to constantly, constantly be poured in anyway. So we're getting more stress and our bucket might have a different functionality to other people because the way we've been treated or the way we've been socialized means that we, we have less capacity to hold those things a really really big association with it and even in terms because I know for me like I I have really extreme highs um where when things are great they are amazing and like you know I can be so bubbly like people can enjoy being around me and then something will happen and it literally crashes it just feels like a complete contrast like a different person um and that's why I think also with women um, ADHD can be misdiagnosed as bipolar disorder because they see the extreme highs and extreme lows and that like, right yeah they're having like a depressive episode and then they're having like a, a heightened heightened mood but actually it's because in general the regulation is difficult and then also when things are good you know we're expressive we're, hit, we're getting that dopamine hit we're having a great time and then when things drop we are like we are struggling um, and it sometimes it even takes a bit longer for us to climb out of that because how we regulate you know, the neurotransmitters is different to neurotypical people. Um, so yeah, I think it's a really important conversation. I think it's something we definitely need to talk about more. And in terms of managing that, um, yeah, I think it's it's, it's building your it's building a routine around yourself that almost counters like the negative experiences that we've had to experience. Um, it's a lot of self work. It's a lot of like re- like rebuilding your environment. Like I've try to be really clear with myself about boundaries and like the people I allow in my life and only only engaging in things that are going to like produce peace or produce like a sense of well-being because I'm I have to acknowledge and accept that I have come from a really difficult past like it has been difficult and the repairing of that means that I can't necessarily move like a neurotypical person or someone who doesn't have an experience of mental health and just accepting that that's okay like these are the cards that I have um so if I need to be like really boundaried in certain areas and that's going to bring me peace, then so be it. Um, if it means I need to do therapy every week for a year, then so be it. Like, you know, if I have to meditate every day, even when I cannot be asked, then so be it. That If that's going to bring me towards healing and peace, um, then that's what it is. But there is a huge comorbidity. And I think it is very much about how society treats us and how we, we misunderstand ourselves because the world is telling us one thing, but that's not actually the case. Um, so the work to, to, re, to rebrand ourselves and to actually take back what's yeah take out what's not ours and give it back to those people and redefine who we are um that's that's the work but I think it's definitely possible Vivian that was incredible I'm sat here tears in my eyes so moved by everything that you have said and this conversation and I know a lot of people listening to this episode now are not neurodiverse hopefully there's a lot of people that are listening to it who are neurodiverse Mm. and find some something within this that makes them feel supported we talk a lot about the structural and the systemic on this podcast this is slightly thinking about more the individual but 
we're thinking about the individual in relation to the structures mm. and in regard in relation to the systems mm. and that's what I feel like your analysis has been really powerful on and yeah because I, I think often this note the notions of self-care individualized issues of mental health neurodiversity can sometimes take away from these different intersections we've been talking about mm-hmm. and that's what I just think you just were so clear on then and yeah I just can't thank you enough for coming on the show thank you no thank you for having me it's really and it's amazing to speak to somebody else who who goes through the experience I feel like it's just so much easier to do that um because like obviously no shade to neurotypical people but you'll just never understand so it just always feels a lot safer to have these conversations where you know that someone's not rolling their eyes like in the back of their head where it's like all you need to do is start your work like you get it uh, so even if you know other people don't it's nice to just know that and for neurotypicals that are thinking about how they can approach neurodiversity differently within their lives one of the things that my therapist says in particular when we're talking about race and white people in particular she says for those people to think about how they can walk alongside you Mm. you can't ever be in our shoes but you can walk alongside us and you can look try and see things or look at things in ways that we're maybe seeing things but you can't ever be Mm. that person and that's not what we're asking from you what we're asking from you is space time compassion empathy understanding Mm -hmm. and recognition yeah that compassion thing I think is so big because I think like you said no one's ever you can't literally walk in our shoes but believe that I'm actually walking on this road like believe me when I say that I'm struggling um I'm not making excuses we're not being lazy like believe us because you know someone said it in one of the groups where it was like if I could choose to not be this way of course I would choose to like I want to do the work but there's a there's a disconnect so just believing people and also like allowing the space for them to be the person they want to be however they, they that support looks like whether it means giving them more time to process or whether it whether it means like dropping them a reminder when you're about to meet up like just approach it with a bit of care because like we we do want to like it's not that we don't we just need the support that's brilliant vivian thank you so so much for coming on the show listeners thank you so much for joining us on this journey and we will see you again next week thank you Thank you for listening to Surviving Society with Chantal and Tiso. You can now continue the conversation with us on Twitter and Instagram. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please support us via Patreon. If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating and reviewing. 